Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're talking about all kinds of darkness, literal, metaphorical and artistic. Our guest has been called the doyen of gothic fiction, the author of smash hit The Silent Companions, Bone China and The Corset. It's Laura Purcell. She joins me to talk about her new novel, The Shape of Darkness, which looks into all kinds of Victorian corners and crevices, from spirit mediums to mesmerism and the uncanny art of silhouette portraiture. The Shape of Darkness follows a vogue for spiritualism in fiction, but it shakes up what we expect from our storybook seance. What we discover is that perhaps the greatest terror in Victorian Britain was being a woman without means. Perhaps that explains the fainting fits. Yeah, one of the things I was keen to ask Laura is how she reconciles the relative powerlessness and fragility of women in in her historical tales with modern feminist writing. Isn't it maddening to have a woman swooning every five minutes? Well, Laura's answer is a good one. So, let's head to Bath in the mid-1800s. The gas lamps are murky and the spirits are knocking. Let's talk scared. So Laura, welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. How is uh, 2021 treating you so far? So far, all right. I mean, obviously lockdown isn't a perfect uh, situation, but luckily me and everyone I know who's dear to me is is keeping well. So fingers crossed that continues. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. So I'm really glad you're on the show. You're kind of the reigning monarch of British neo-Gothic. Oh. Well, yeah, you've kind of stepped into the breach that has been vacated by Sarah Waters. So I'm glad that someone is fulfilling that role in horror right at the minute. You're here to talk about your newest novel, The Shape of Darkness. Yes. It's your fourth book that marries the historical with the downright spooky. (laughs) What do you need to know about it? Okay, uh, it's set in Victorian Bath. It's about a silhouette artist whose clients start to die mysteriously after seeing her. Um, She tries to find an answer. The police have no clues. So she consults a spirit medium to try and contact the spirits of her dead clients and find out exactly what happened to them. But as she does so, she starts to think that she might have unleashed something she wasn't expecting. Let's start broad, because Mm -hmm. I'm, as I've said, I'm excited to have you on the show because I'm a gothic nerd myself. Oh, thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's really nice to speak to someone who is kind of emphatically gothic for a change, as opposed (laughs) to necessarily horror inflected, though we'll no doubt get into the boundaries between those terms. Yeah, it's quite difficult to be a gothic writer because a lot of your work tends to get judged by sort of horror standards. And, you know, people might say, oh, it's not quite scary enough or not quite bloody enough. And then obviously other people who kind of read it from more of a historical fiction perspective think it is a bit too scary and a bit too bloody. So um, gothics, this kind of in-between genre where people don't always understand what it means. But yeah, I love it personally. And and I love reading books that are gothic. Yeah, well, I spent many years at university kind of writing about the gothic in depth and still haven't answered the, the fundamental question of what is gothic. No, I don't really know what it is, I'll be honest. (laughs) 
it's a church that these are these soul broaders to be essentially meaningless but for the for the benefit of of this novel we're talking about a novel that that sits in a well-defined lineage of authors from you know the Brontes through Wilkie Collins through some Dickens you know all the way into the present day Shirley Jackson people like that that's for me where this sits would you agree yes yes I'd be delighted to be in such company Oh, definitely. This is very much, like I say, in that tradition. But you began your career writing more mainstream historical fiction, and then came The Silent Companions. Yes, it was quite a uh, a change for me at the time. I mean, what I was writing was very, uh, you know, straightforward historical fiction. It was about the lives of the Georgian queens, Hanoverian monarchs. But actually, as a family, uh, the Hanoverians were just very gothic. Um, and I think it gave me a taste for it. Obviously, you've got King George who, who the third, who went slightly mad. And you had King George I, who locked his wife up in a castle for infidelity. There's all these little gothic touches coming through in their lives. So I think that inspired me to look at the dark side of history. And then I just had the idea for the Silent Companions. Um through seeing Silent Companions, these just horrific, scary <laughs> kind of antiques that terrified me. And I thought, oh, I'll have a go. I'll have a go at writing something that's more creepy and blood chilling. And uh, I'm very fortunate that it worked out for me. Well, it more than worked out. It kind of blew up massively. <laughs> I, mem- I remember, what year was it that it came out? Uh, 2017. Yeah, I remember for like a year, it was just everywhere you looked, you know, what was almost book of the month, you know, everywhere you looked, you couldn't, you couldn't move for the Silent Companions. What was it like when that happened? I mean, having, you know, plugged away at historical fiction for, for a while, was it like unexpected that it would be such a success? Yeah, I think especially at the time I was querying, uh, trying to get an agent with the manuscript, you know, people just weren't really interested in Gothic at that time. There wasn't much gothic in the mainstream, I think, around that time. And nobody seemed particularly willing to take it. So other than my obviously wonderful agent, Juliet Mushens. But then, yeah, it, it blew up. And it was it's quite confusing when you're an author to sort of know how well you're doing because you're friends with other authors and some of them are doing excessively well. And it's really hard to get perspective on it. You can't really view your book as a, as a normal person does um, but yeah it, it was it was great but just a, a bit of a whirlwind I can't remember a lot of that time to be honest with you because I was uh, promoting the silent companions I was editing the corset which was my second book for for raven books and I was also trying to work on a first draft for bone china which was my third so it was just a very hectic time I I, I just remember a few events and parties and, and things and it all blurs into one <laughs> yeah that, that that's the thing that will dean said last week he said you can never judge yourself by the book that everyone else is judging you by because no. by the time that's out you, that you wrote that two years ago you're working on the next thing and that had never occurred to me before that you know it's kind of old news to you once it's in everyone else's eyes well the thing is you always have to do a bit of a brushing up before your book comes out because all the research you've done when it's historical you would have done, like you said, you know, two or three years ago and people ask you complicated questions about it and you can't remember. <laughs> well, as I say, you have become this really significant figure in, I won't say horror, but, you know, in, in gothic fiction. Um, mm. It's perhaps too broad a question to be fair to ask, but 
as far as you're concerned, what's the secret to crafting an authentic piece of period gothic? Oh, oh, that's really difficult. Um, I think, you know, it's it's all atmosphere. I would say, you know, gothic is 80% maybe atmosphere. You want to have a great plot as well, obviously, and, and good characters, motivations. But I think you really need to focus on creating that that sense of dread, the slowly building dread. And so to do that, I think having a good setting is vital as well when you're you're trying to plot through your story. You know, there's some great settings for, for the Gothic, like the moors and old haunted houses and or sometimes in the woods. You just want to find somewhere that you can really imagine and, and create this sense of menace. Well, that's interesting because you, you set this novel in Bath Mm. This is where you can see the north-south divide. Nothing, nothing sums up the north-south linguistic divide like the name Bath. <laughs> you say Bath, I, I say Bath. But you live in Colchester, yet you've set this novel in Bath, which says to me there is a purpose to doing that. It's not just where you live. Because you'd expect, you know, it's, it's the mid-19th century, you'd expect a novel of this kind to take place in London. Yes. Yet you've set it in a provincial town. Are you doing the kind of Jane Austen thing about trying to get across that this is an outmoded place to live? Yeah, partially. I mean, I I love Jane Austen. And it was actually when I was attending the Jane Austen Festival in Bath that I had the idea to write this novel because they had a, a silhouette workshop where you could try making your own silhouette. And as I was listening to the man, he's called Charles Burns. He's a great silhouette artist um, and he's cut a silhouette of me, which was great fun. He was e- explaining about how silhouette artists used to you know, apply their trade in Bath and the gradual evolution of that into photography. And as he was sort of talking about, you know, the Georgian heyday of Bath in Jane Austen's time, where it was very beautiful and very wonderful, as you go through to the Victorian period, it becomes you know a little bit seedy a little bit down at hill and it hasn't you know achieved its beauty that it has now it's it's in this kind of in-between phase of just not being a great place and I thought that's just perfect for the gothic um you know if you go to, to Bath even now like at night it's quite spooky it's got this wonderful ancient feel to it and I just started imagining you know how it must be in those Victorian times where all the fashionable people have deserted it and it's not as affluent as it used to be. All the beautiful buildings are sort of stained by the coal smoke. I thought, yes, this is this is a gothic setting. Yeah, it is, because it's it's quite an unnerving, uncanny place. As you said, Ooh. there's this weight of history and there's all this beautiful architecture, but you paint it as a kind of Hieronymus Bosch hellscape at night sometimes <laughs> when the main character, Agnes, is walking around. It feels like a threatening place. Like these buildings start to loom down. There's a, there's a th- constant threat of violence on the streets. Which, yes. when you've been to Bath these days, it, it couldn't seem less like you know the case. <laughs> it, it was probably inspired as well by I did a a ghost walk in Bath while I was down there, uh, me and my friends, and and that was at night, and we were taken around Bath, hearing all these creepy stories. And when you're in that kind of atmosphere, it becomes. A little bit spookier and uh, we had a, a funny moment where a, a rat suddenly ran out from nowhere and crawled right across my friend's feet we didn't know it was happening at the time but it was in the middle of a ghost story and she just suddenly shrieked <laughs> and so so for me I'll always remember that blood-curdling moment in Bath yeah I can imagine so 
talking about spooky stories, The Shape of Darkness very much is one. Where did the central idea come from? Because what I find interesting is you've got two separate conceits at play in the book. So you've got on one hand the world of spiritualism and, and to a lesser extent magnetism. Mm. And on the other is this very offbeat art form, the silhouette portrait. What brought those two ideas clashing together in your mind? Because either one could be the basis of a novel. That's true, actually. Um, I think at one point I was also toying with the idea of getting uh, spirit photography in there. I think at first I was I was looking at silhouettes. Like I said, I, I liked the idea of something spooky with a silhouette artist. And I thought, oh, you know, shadows, shadows can be ghostly. I can make something of that. And while I was thinking of Agnes's story, uh, she's a silhouette artist, but obviously her art form is falling out of fashion, like Bath is falling out of fashion, and everyone wants photography. So originally in my mind, I was going to have another character who was a spirit photographer who, you know, overexposed films to capture sort of blurs and people thought they were ghosts. But as I was writing it, it just didn't quite work. I didn't quite like it. but I'd, through doing all the research on spirit photography, I'd come across spirit mediums and mesmerism. And I suddenly thought, actually, this this would be a good angle to explore. I can have the silhouette, I can have the um, spirits still in it, but I don't have to have them physically represented in these photographs. So, yeah, it, it was a bit of an organic process, really. So dealing with the spiritualism first... Yeah, there's a, a a bit of a literary vogue for the topic currently. So just in the last few months, I've interviewed Kate Summerscale, who her nonfiction work, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, is all about spiritualism in the 1930s. It's a great read. Andrew Piper in The Resident looks at the American phenomenon of the Fox sisters who attended a, a seance at the White House. Oh, yeah. Started all the knocking. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Is there a real world background to any of the stuff in your novel? It's not based on anything in particular, but I did a lot of research around spirit mediums. Um, my book is set in the 1850s, and most of the spiritualism research I did was from the 1870s. Katie, Katie King and Florence Cook were two prominent names uh, because Florence Cook was a a teenager who shot to stardom as a kind of celebrity spirit medium producing her spirit guide Katie King the first materialized ghost in England part of my research was based on that but I also did a lot of research around a lady called Elizabeth de Esperance I'm not sure if that was her real name <laughs> but she was a um Again, a famous spirit medium around the same time. Um, and her memoir was hugely influential to me because it was just, it was called Shadowland, funnily enough, because um, The Shape of Darkness is about shadows. But it was just a very unsettling kind of read as she described her life with this gift that she believed she had. Seeing shadow people through her childhood, she went on a holiday cruise and she thought she saw this ghost boat chasing them. She had a really kind of quite scary life through these things that were happening to her. And and she began to um, worry that she might be going mad. And then she began to worry that she might be being possessed by the devil. Uh, And then as she developed under the guidance of a a society, you know, her sort of 
spirit medium power uh she began to fear that you know the ghosts might sort of take her over and, and take her place and she wouldn't know who she was anymore and it was just quite astonishing to read all these points of view about the subject that you know you wouldn't really think about um i don't think many of us really sort of sit and consider what would it be like to believe i could talk to dead people you know it's it's kind of refreshingly honest and i by the end of it i couldn't really say what i believed uh you know whether she she was ill or she was deluded or whether these things really did happen to her you know it was a a really interesting memoir and i'd recommend it to anyone interested in the subject i'll put that in the show notes so people can check it out um <laughs> and a lot of what you said there i having read the book recently i i can see how that has tight played into the story you've created some in some ways that i can't go into because there are spoilers there <laughs> But one thing that does shine out is the fact that you've you've written the seance scenes in this novel really without reverting to the standard tropes. What I found impressive and original is that the spiritualism seems like a wild, barely controlled thing. It's it's not actually always clear what's being conjured or who's doing the conjuring, and and the rules seem to be in complete flux. It feels dangerous. Yeah. I, I like that feeling. I think you're right. There is a danger when you're writing a seance scene of it seeming very stale and almost laughable um, in its theatricality. Um, and I really wanted to create seance scenes that had me a bit freaked out. And I thought, you know, what is the scariest part of, of a seance? Is it that the people you're talking to might be dead or... Or is it the idea that you're dealing with a force you can't control? And that felt a lot scarier to me. So I wanted I wanted to add that into the book and, and try and create these these sessions where you're not really sure who's controlling whom. One of the things that I found most horrible is that, well, for a start, your your medium is a eleven year old girl who yeah. who has albinism, so is is already photosensitive, so lives in darkness. Uh, there's whole sorts of tragedy in her life, but yeah, she's this very vulnerable creature, and there's something quietly horrible about a little girl being taken over by the spirits of of adults that I find disturbing. Uh, but also the idea of that you get across of the afterlife being a continual experiencing of the moment of death. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that really jarred me. How did you come up with that particular concept? Do you know? I think. I think it's my own fears, really. Uh, you know, when you're writing scary things, you really have to play on your own fears as much as you can, as uncomfortable as it is, because that's where I think the authentic writing comes across. If you're scared by it, the readers will feel scared by it too. Um, and personally, I am religious, so I don't actually fear being dead, the, the actual being dead part. But I'm not great with pain, and I really do fear like you know the bodily experience of death how how it would feel to have your body shutting down um and any kind of you know pain that experience so for me that was the scariest alternative of life after death that that you just don't escape that worst moment it is rather horrible isn't it i don't know where i came up with it from <laughs> must have been having a dark day <laughs> yeah that's the fun of being a horror writer though you get to use this stuff the rest of it 
other people sit there and rock back and forth in a darkened room. You get to tell a story. <laughs> but you don't make it you don't make it really kind of prominent that little detail with yeah, it really disturbed me that the thought that that is what the afterlife may be. It is interesting to speak to somebody though who has religious belief. I mean, I don't want to get too much into it, but I found that an awful lot of horror writers I speak to are atheist or agnostic. Um, and not not to get sidetracked away from from your novel, but does having a religious belief, you know, does that change for you writing about spirits and the supernatural and things like that? Does it have an impact? I think it only has an impact in as much as I want to respect other people's beliefs. So, you know, personally, I'm not a spiritualist and I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm very aware that I have a religion that other people, you know, might find as absurd as I would find some of the the things that happened in these 19th century seances. So I think it just makes me try and and view things a bit more balancedly and with a kind of respect, uh, you know, knowing that these beliefs would have been important to people um, and, you know, not, not to be laughed at. So it authenticates things a little bit more, maybe. Yeah, I hope so. I think it it probably makes you stop and, and you know, consider why they believed things. And I'm very interested in belief systems and, and how they evolve. So, you know, I, I start to look at that with the characters. And obviously we, um, you know, you mentioned Pearl, my child spirit medium. Um, it's all she's known and she's been brought up with it. It's only as the book starts when she's 11 years old that she starts to question a few things that she's been told. But she's, you know, she's had no experience of the outside world and, and her belief system is in, entirely based on what her sister tells her. Mm-hmm. Yes, Myrtle. Uh... Yes, so Myrtle's kind of her her goddess in a way. You know, she, she yeah. controls everything. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, it is... It is disturbing this idea of of kids being exploited and and taken over, but a lot of that and, and Pearl's age sort of came from some real life study where I was disturbed, <laughs> um, because I think I mentioned with uh, Florence Cook, you know, she was in her early teens when she first started being a spirit medium, and a lot of these famous spirit mediums were sort of young, pretty girls, um, and there'd be certain wealthy men that would patronize them or manage them kind of take control over who accessed them and uh, there was a lot of ghost groping going on as well so when the spirit mediums called what they materialized a ghost I personally believe some of this was the actual spirit medium in costume um but you know I think you you can believe whatever you want. But what happened when they materialised these ghosts was that the gentlemen of the party would all, you know, start to touch them to verify they were real, um, try and and see if they were wearing any undergarments and things like that and sit them on their laps. And given the age of some of these spirit mediums, I was just quite disturbed by that picture. I mean, you you allude to that, don't you, in the the novel? And yeah, it made my hair stand up a little bit. It's a bit, it's a bit grim. Um, yeah, there are some worrying, some worrying aspects of it. <laughs> yeah, when I was reading the Haunting of Alma Fielding, Kate Summerscale's book, she makes the point that it's a highly sexualized energy that is happening in the room when these things are are occurring. There's a a weird flirtation between observer and subject, which which is unnerving to begin with in in such a a strange environment, but doubly so when 
the subject is a, a prepubescent child. And, and whether or not yeah. you believe, as some people do, that that spiritualism and, and, and these kind of manifestations are scientifically to do with puberty, you know, that's a whole different strand of thought. There, there, is, there is something just very icky about a girl at that age being put in this position and exploited. It's yeah, yeah. It's it it, it does make you you wonder what went on in the parlours of of Victorian London. <laughs> you do have to worry, don't you? But that's a, that's good because I've got I've got a. Uh... Summer Scales book, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it. So I, I might have to move that up my to-be-read list. It's a very odd book. I mean, in a complimentary way, but it's very unusual. But back to you. Have you ever attended a seance? No, no. And actually, as, as I was saying, uh, you know, I, I toyed with the idea of of doing so for research. But actually, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm religious and it, it's kind of against the principles of that. But I do have some friends um, that are spiritualists and they they dabble quite a lot in the old seances. So um, I've pumped them for information about it. And, yeah, it sounds frankly terrifying to me. Uh, they have some very weird experiences of, of, you know, people talking in their ears and um, one making very lewd suggestions apparently uh, – yeah, I, you couldn't drag me along, to be honest. With, <laughs> I, I'd be terrified. Um, yeah, me, I'm the same because it's interesting you said about the, the book you read. Sorry, what was the, what was the the woman's name? Esperanza. What was? Oh yeah, uh, Elizabeth. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, De Esperance, I think it's Elizabeth De Esperance. And you said that she started to doubt her mind and was she being possessed? Was she was she going mad? Stuff like that. Yeah. My great worry with all this spiritualist stuff is that I've got a very very vulnerable mind for spookiness <laughs> like i'm an yeah. arch rationalist in the cold light of day but put me in a scenario where it's a bit spooky my mind goes if if i heard something downstairs in my house i think it's a ghost before i think it's a burglar put it that way and i always feel like if i put myself in that position i'm not so much worried that something bad would happen i'm more worried that i would start to believe something had happened and that i'd lose, yeah. I'd lose you know the, the grip with it really that's yeah I think I'll leave it to other people yeah I think I feel the same this is this is the thing I sort of say you know I don't believe in ghosts and, and you know by the light of day I don't but I'm exactly the same if I hear a noise in the middle of the night my my first thought is oh my god it's a ghost completely but the the, the flip side of of this you've got the spiritualism on one side on one side and the other side is these these silhouettes, these these portraits. Now, mm. I've got to admit, I'd never really heard of this as a as an art form before I read your novel. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. It passed me by, and this. I mean, I, I actually wrote. You saw, I wrote on Twitter that I now want one, and you gave me the link, which <laughs> yeah. I want to look into. Um, they make a great adornment to the story, but do they also serve a thematic purpose? Yes, I think so. You know, with hauntings, I think shadows are a great kind of, you know, metaphor, how you're followed by your shadow, you know, your shadow haunts you, you can't escape from it. I liked that idea. And I also like the idea, I think I mentioned it in the book, where when you're looking at a sort of profile with silhouette, it has this ghostly air to it, where all the features are kind of, you know, rubbed out. You've got the shape, but it's a, a kind of lifeless sort of, death mask in a way uh, yeah and and you know I liked as well the idea that they were just so dark they were some colored silhouettes that, that were colored in and but when you've got ones that are just black 
the I think I say as well that they're like a hole that you could possibly fall down, and <laughs> I, I I think that's that's great for representing the past. You know, anything that lays buried, and and there is a lot that lays buried in this novel. It's yes, as you go yes. along, you're basically pe- you're piecing together what's happened to this woman prior to the first page, and there's there's, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of tragedy that kind of reawakens in the present. Yeah, and. Um... I think as well the the idea of Pearl being photosensitive and as you said she's she's albino and she uh she's kind of a flip side of Agnes and this kind of shadowy world that she's living in she's got this bright outline and and, and lightness to her um which contrasts the characters I hope well of course because she is Pearl so she's iridescent and, and Agnes's surname is Darken that's how it <laughs> dawned on me there is a there's a kind of duality there that I hadn't, I hadn't noticed but yeah, these silhouettes, they are, they're an offbeat, quirky art form. I would say in, in the same way as the, you know, the titular silent companions of your, of your other novel. Yeah, I like quirky things. <laughs> the silent companions, for those who don't know, who haven't read the book, are, are painted life-sized cutouts of people, right? Yeah, that's right. And they, yeah, they're following... Ellie around the house uh, and then there's your short story cameo with its haunted object <laughs> why do you think you like to hang your novels on these they're almost like MacGuffins you know yeah I think what fascinates me about history and you know I go around museums a lot and and look at things from the past uh, it's really a doorway to the past for me to look at an object and to think you know wow I wonder who owned that and what it meant to them and what it was used for. And I start to try and see it in their life. And and then my mind sort of starts ticking. Um, and I think of all the things it, it can be thematically and it can be used to represent. Yeah, so I always, I always find something in my research, an object that, that inspires a thought, which, I, you know, and I think haunted objects are such a great, <laughs> a great thing. Like, you know, you have a haunted house, and the ghosts kind of have to stay in the house. Because you have a haunted object and, and it can haunt so many different people. I was on holiday in Canada with my wife a few years ago and we went to this this old waterfall and I found what I thought was um, a kind of stone axe head. And I was like, I'm going to take this home. My, my, my wife is insisting it was just a stone that had to be <laughs> shaped that way. But I'm like, that's definitely an axe head. And I was going to take it home. And then at the last moment, I literally thought to myself, no, because it's a long way to come back to inevitably have to leave it back when I take some kind of, you know, First Nations demon home with me. <laughs> when you have to put the curse back. Yeah, I've got to come all the way back and I can't get the annual leave and stuff. I thought, you know, I'll probably <laughs> leave the accent here. But it's a genuine thought that occurred to me. It's like, in my 30s, for God's sake, you know. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so have you got any objects that you've seen that are like burning their way in your mind right now that you've got to write a novel about? Oh, no, I don't think I have, actually. I mean, I've been, you know, sadly limited in my um, my museum Yeah, visits. there is that. I think, although I did, I think I came across something the other day when I, I can't remember what I was researching, but it was, um, it was an elaborate form of the kind of quizzing glasses they had in the Regency. I don't know if you know about these. No, I don't know. So it, it was like a magnifying glass, a very beautiful jeweled one on on a chain that would sort of hang about 
your neck or you know from your your watch chain and you could just use it to look at people basically it was just an instrument for being nosy if you're in the theater and you wanted to see someone who was sitting far away and and look at their outfit you could just put this quizzing glass to your eye and and inspect them through it it's a bit like the lorgnette you know um it's just a really awful <laughs> kind of invention to have. And, and it would be quite socially acceptable at the time to quiz people, they'd say, you know, inspect them through through these glasses. So I, I was kind of having an idea about what you could do with that. You know how uh, Daphne du Maurier wrote the blue lenses where someone through these blue glasses could see people as animals, um, sort of bestial. And I thought, oh. No, I don't know that story, actually, no. Oh, you should read it. It's brilliant. But I, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could have this sort of magic quizzing glass that let you see people's secrets? Oh, yeah, that's quite M.R. James, that. Like it's quite, well, that's the thing. I mean, yeah, M.R. James does it a lot as well, doesn't he, with objects? Um, mesotint and things like that. I was just that. about to say the, the mesotint is my favourite. I really love that. It's it's really and creepy. what's the one when he's looking from the hill through the telescope? And it, is, it a, a view for, is it a view from the hill? Yeah, I don't remember that one. I remember oh, there was one with the well. I remember the one with the whistle. That was where I whistle and I'll come yeah. to you. Um, that's really creepy. Alyssa will let me know what the one I'm thinking of. I think it's the view from the hill. Well, anyway, so we'll, I look forward to your to your uh, your next novel about the the, the, the looking glass. Then, <laughs> sure, it will be that, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I, want, I do want to ask is so. Your work has been described, and I'm, I'm, I'm dragging this quote from the back of a book, as sophisticatedly spooky. Oh, that's nice. That got me thinking about what we mean by sophisticated, because it is, you know what I mean? But I thought, why do we, what do we mean by that? And then it got me thinking about like historical fiction and gothic and how, how setting things in a period, particularly mm. like female-led historical fiction, it often demands a kind of gentility that can offset the horrors within the story and elevate the tone. Yes, I was finding this recently, actually, with something uh, I was writing. Um, you know, I sent it to my agent and I said, I, I can't get the tone right. And she she did say, it feels, it feels too cosy. You know, I had gone to Victorian drawing room and there was no sense of threat. So I do think that is, that is a problem if, if you're with historical fiction. You know, you can veer a bit too far away from from the unsettling and the and the horror and find yourself writing a sort of period romance so it's, it's definitely something to watch out for history in the victorian period is, a, is an inherently spooky kind of setting i imagine it's it's relatively simple to find the creepiness within that but at the same time when you're writing about women in this era as you kind of often do does it ever feel like a cage do you ever feel yourself kind of worrying at the 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 limits that the period places on your characters' actions and and their voices. Yes, I think it can do. Um, you know, with the voices, because sometimes when you're you're wanting to make something scary, you're tempted to use modern comparisons and and uh, a sort of short sentence structure that feels very modern. Whereas the, you know the Victorians went on and on and on in their sentences. You know, Charles Dickens probably had a sentence that lasted two pages. <laughs> But I, and I think as well, I'm I'm always interested from the female perspective of things because I, you know, I, I feel it's it's a lot more confined in a way the female perspective, and, and that is quite gothic. But it is worrying, like you said, in certain scenes, 
and you you want something to happen and you think well my heroine just wouldn't have been in that situation you know she wouldn't have been allowed in there she wouldn't be allowed to go here or say that or do this uh, it can be a bit tricky but I think the knack of it really is to use their confinement against them to make that part of the creepiness you know to to dwell on things that are scary about their limitations uh, like we were saying with with Pearl you know being a young girl she's at the mercy of those older to her and and with Agnes in the shape of darkness you know her limitations are her unmarried state and her poverty I tried to use them against her to to make her life more frightening so there are ways around it yeah, that's a great point. Actually, I hadn't thought of that, that, you know, in the yellow wallpaper and, and that kind of thing, the narrow horizons are part of the fear. That isn't, they're not just a narrative block. They're actually part of the, of the scare. That that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, this sort of dwindling, you know, dwindling world that's getting smaller and smaller as, as things are being kept from you, I think is, is quite a horrific concept. I, I do ask that question in particular, though, because when I was reading Agnes in The Shape of Darkness, like she has a lot of weakness and, and a kind of fragility about her. Mm-hmm. And as it goes on, there are revelations that explain a lot of this um, as more than her just being... Feeble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, feeble. Yeah. Um, but there are parts, for example, where she kind of like nearly faints at the sight of a grave and and she has an attack of the vapours during times of stress. And <laughs> as a woman writing in the 21st century, does it ever get irritating to conform to those tropes of a woman who was kind of basically incapable of taking care of herself. Yeah, to some extent it does. Um, I think Agnes is one of, you know, my only characters that is like that, to be honest. Um, Everybody else I've written has some sort of gumption. (laughs) Whereas I think Agnes, you know, has a lot of ill health. Um, And like you say, there there are explanations in her past why she's been like that. But, you know, I have to assume that swooning happened a lot more often <laughs> in the Victorian period from to judge from the literature of the time. Um, it seems very strange to me, but I, I think part of the joy of being able to write a character like Agnes is I have some fainting issues myself. <laughs> and uh, it was it was quite nice to be able to actually put someone in who, who would faint at stupid things like I have been known to do. <laughs> it was quite a comfort to me, but no doubt. Most modern women are a lot stronger. <laughs> well, well, I think in my house, if anyone, I, I'm much more more likely to swoon at the sign of stress than my wife, to be honest. <laughs> I fainted on a train once um, because I was reading a book, and you know, I I do like like horror, and I was reading a book that was particularly bloody, um, and it was describing a blood transfusion and it was so graphic that I just passed out on the train. <laughs> I had to be woken up at the stop. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pathetic. What was the book? Uh was it called The House of I think it was called The House of Sight and Shadows. It was more gothic than um than horror, but you know, this blood transfusion scene was just I'm not great with blood anyway, which is weird for a fan of horror to say <laughs> but um, I'm not great with blood yeah and I just passed out you know it's it happens to me quite a lot so so there's there's a part of the biographical in Agnes. <laughs> Fair enough I mean that may kind of hint at an answer to my next question which is that you know you've moved so far from historical fiction to period gothic would you ever take a further step and write a kind of contemporary horror novel? Yeah, you know, I'd really like to, actually. Um, It's a bit difficult 
in the way of of publishing contracts you know um it's very difficult to get a mainstream publishing contract with an all-out horror novel um you know if you're Stephen King great but otherwise it can be quite tricky and I'm often playing you know the fine line between wanting to write something a bit more horrific and and having to rein it back for a more sort of mainstream audience so you know what is fun is when I get commissioned to write short stories for horror collections and I can just do what I like you know there can be as much gore in it as I want it can be as horrific as I want so yeah I mean I love I love modern horror I, I would love to be able to write something you know really truly horrific in the modern world but I imagine I'd scare myself a lot more doing so because it would feel a lot more real to me rather than something safely in the past. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it would definitely be a challenge, but one I, I'm definitely up for. Excellent. So what is next from you? Do you know? Well, yeah, <laughs> I've been having I've been having a lot of trouble writing in uh, the pandemic. I have been commissioned for two more books um, and one of them is a very something people will be very excited by but I can't mention it yet um okay and the other one I'm working on at the moment I'm not really sure what it's going to be at the moment to be honest with you because I had an idea and then the pandemic struck and I kept writing it but I wasn't really in a good frame of mind and I just ended up with a lot of gobbledygook I'm I've got to to get back to the drawing board and and figure out what I'm doing um but there is definitely more to come is it going to be in a creepy vein or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a creepy vein, uh, you know, I know which side my bread's buttered on. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. Well, to finish up, um, I have four questions. I ask each guest if you wouldn't mind answering them. I'm compiling the answer to this. So one day I'm going to put it out in a book. Are you OK to give me the first thing that comes to your mind to my four rapid fire questions? Absolutely. Excellent. So question the first. What was your gateway to horror? Oh, the movie Scream. I think that was the first horror film I watched and and I became a bit obsessed with it. And because it is a film about horror films, it gave me lots of ideas of what to watch next. <laughs> and I think through that, I, I developed a love for, for horror in cinema. Yeah, it's a great primer. If you were to recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? I mean... It's one that I should think probably all the listeners have already read because it's such a classic, but um, The Shining by Stephen King. Um, I remember just before I wrote The Silent Companions, I was just reading as many creepy books as I could just to prime myself for it. And that was just the standout one. You know, it it's such powerful storytelling. It's so creepy. It's so addictive. I just love it. So yeah, if you haven't got around to The Shining yet, move it to the top of your list. I embarked on a whole Twitter rant today where I said I hate the film. Oh, I also hate the film. <laughs> it brought down quite some rage upon my head. Uh, but the book is, is a masterpiece. It's got really scary hedge animals. I mean, what? Yeah, the hedge animals. What happened to the hedge animals in that film? <laughs> I think the budget happened to the hedge animals in that film. Um, if you had a single piece of advice for a wannabe novelist like myself, what would it be? Like a horror novelist or just novelist in general? Well, either, I guess, whatever's, whatever you want to say. I was going to say, if it's, if it's a horror novelist, you know, I, I would say absolutely write what scares you. And I know it sounds so blatantly obvious, but 
you know, without triggering yourself if possible, but using some of your, you know, your darkest fears really brings across fear in the reader. You know, make your worst case scenarios and write them uh, because that will really come across as authentic and, and it will be powerful. Um, for just novelists in general, just keep going. I mean, that's the hardest thing. And it's still hard for me now. You know, I've, The Shape of Darkness is my fourth book published by Bloomsbury and I had two books published before that. So that's, you know, that's six. You know, I still doubt myself. I still find it it difficult. And you just have to keep going um, and push on through. And it, it's hard to maintain that level of belief in yourself. But, you know, just 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 keep trying. That's all you can do. It's, it's simple advice, but it, I think it's the best because... So many people, you know, end up disheartened and thinking they're going to have to give up after rejections. I don't know, I can understand why, because it's gruelling getting rejections. It's, you know, it's not great for your mental health, but at the end of the day, you know, you only fail if you quit. I want on a t-shirt though, you only fail, you only fail if you quit. That's that, yeah, that'll do for me. That's it. <laughs> and my last question, we've covered a lot of it today, but I want to, I want to ask you anyway, what scares you the most? Oh, I mean, there's obvious things, you know, like we were saying about the pandemic at the moment. I've got lots of uh, vulnerable uh, people in my family, so obviously that scares me. But I think it's pretty more amusing for the listeners to hear about the weird things that scare me. Definitely. And so, you know, I'm I'm not great with creepy crawlies. Creepy crawlies really scare me, you know, especially daddy long legs, the way they move. I hate it. I just hate it. <laughs> and I've also got a weird, it's not exactly a fear, but an uneasiness around sloths. <laughs> I I don't like the way their faces don't match their body that they've got very you know they're an odd shape they've got these big shoulders and this shaggy fur but then like claws but this little tiny cute face and it it doesn't belong there <laughs> and I find them really unsettling I can't I can't put my finger on it so yeah sloths and spiders don't don't send them my way that is definitely the, the weirdest answer yet. I've had some weirdness, but sloths is that takes the cake. <laughs> I, I've been, I've been to Costa Rica and seen them in the wild, and and they're not scary. You, you'd be okay. I mean, they they couldn't come for me quickly either, could they? But I don't know what it is. There's just something unsettling about them. Where I just look at them and I think, no, that's not right. Something's wrong here. <laughs> The funniest thing about them is that they come down from their tree once a day to take a crap <laughs> and then climb back up it. And that's all they do. That's literally all they do. It's not rational by any stretch of the imagination, but it's an amusing fear. So I thought I'd share that. <laughs> Far be it from me to decry anyone's fear, but I think you could take a sloth in a fight. <laughs> On that absolutely surreal note, Laura Purcell, thank you for talking scared. Oh, thank you. It was a real pleasure to get into the gothic this week. Though I enjoy a bit of gore or a monster, I mean I love a monster, or a bloke with a a mask and an axe, my heart will always lie in shadows and mysteries and, and dark histories. And Laura's work gets to the nub of all that. Reading her fiction is like reading the darkest chapters of Dickens turned up to 11, Everything is tweaked to make it that bit more uncanny, that bit scarier than other historical fiction. She has great, grotesque characters and a really sinister atmosphere, 
Plus, the idea of silhouette portraiture is a fantastic hook for a novel. The Shape of Darkness was published by Raven Books on January 21st. Give it a read, and if you like it, definitely check out her first novel, The Silent Companions. So, lesson time. Now, I could bore on for hours, days, about what the Gothic is, and still not reach a clear definition. Like I said to Laura, the genre itself is a sprawling monstrosity that that seems to be infecting all avenues of culture. Everything from Edgar Allan Poe to Buffy the Vampire Slayer can fall under the goth heading these days, and whilst a lot of that is true, it does mean that when something can mean anything, it runs the risk of really meaning nothing. Best to keep it simple. My all-time favourite definition of gothic, at least in terms of fiction, and, and trust me, I've read hundreds... The best definition is by Chris Baldick, who is an academic and editor of the Oxford Book of Gothic Tales. He said famously that a gothic tale should, quote, combine a fearful sense of inheritance in time with a claustrophobic sense of enclosure in space. These two dimensions reinforcing one another to produce an impression of sickening descent into disintegration. Yeah, that, that's a lot to take in, in one unwieldy sentence. So, without getting too much up my own backside on this, what he means is that gothic is all about claustrophobia, feeling trapped or at the mercy of something, and that can be spatial, whether it's old castles, catacombs, woods, modern haunted houses, or it can be historical, and that can be personal history, memory, dreams, trauma, past sins, or a national history. So a typical gothic story involves someone in a troubled location that is haunted by something, whether it's a ghost or an evil past. Think every haunted house tale you've ever read. But for really clear examples, think the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, which is marked by all the horrendous things that have happened in that building, which are then married with the fractured, troubled psyche of Jack Torrance. Or, more simply, the Marston Place in Salem's Lot, which Stephen King wrote as the quintessential American bad place. Or, you know, you can read things that aren't by Stephen King. I try it now and again. Uh, Go back and listen to Jo Kaplan talk about her novel It Will Just Be Us in episode 4. That is quintessential modern gothic. If you want a primer, a bit of a reading list on the history of the gothic, then I can mention a few key points on the timeline. It all began with The Castle of Otranto in 1764, a book written by Horace Walpole that sets out the first notes of what the Gothic is, or what it would be for a while at least. Old castles, family secrets, past sins come into light. It's all very dated and and not much value for readers beyond academic research, to be honest. But it does include one scene in which someone is crushed by a giant ghostly armoured helmet, so there is that. Following on from Otranto, we get the high gothic of Anne Radcliffe. Her novels were usually popular in the mid-18th century. She was very much the Stephen King of her day. Again, they are old-fashioned, long-winded and overly romantic. But there's still so much to recommend them in, in the sheer mechanics of storytelling and their importance to the history of the genre that we all love. Look up The Mysteries of Udolfo or The Italian. For an alternative take from the era... You could try Matthew Lewis's The Monk. This one is infamous for its bloodiness and perversity, even by today's standards. Incest and sexual deviance abound in a tale of a 
perverse clergyman trying to cover up his secrets. And one scene stands up to today's levels of gore in which an evil nun is kicked to death until she is, to paraphrase, little more than a puddle. That high period of Gothic is considered to end with Melmoth the Wanderer by Charles Maturin. That's a hugely complex and interconnecting novel of, of stories, kind of the house of leaves of its time. It's, it's really rewarding, but hard work. Sarah Perry wrote a fantastic modern take on it in her novel Melmoth a few years ago, and I'd really recommend checking out both. Beyond that, we get more familiar names. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Tales of Edgar Allan Poe, all fantastic stories that can be absolutely read for pleasure in the modern day. Dracula, in particular, feels fresh and up-to-date even now, as it's all about the conflict between history and new technology, with serious parallels for our contemporary life. Into the 20th century, we get Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Then, in the 70s, comes The New Wave, Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, a lesser-known novel called The Other by Thomas Tryon. And then Stephen King released Carrie, and the horror game changed forever. But it also stayed the same, because you can go back to those earliest novels by Anne Radcliffe and trace the lineage all the way to novels like The Shining and even The Shape of Darkness coming out today. So I hope that helps. If you know this stuff already, then forgive me my self-importance. If not, maybe check out the roots of horror in the Gothic. Do you like Gothic fiction? Um, would you like to argue about definitions or categories? I'm game. Come geek out with me. It will give me a reason to dust off all my old books that are taking up space in the spare room and annoying the hell out of my wife. You can reach me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And we finally had a few reviews trickling through, which is great. Please do take the time, if you can, to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Failing that, you know, on Twitter, get the word out there. It's crucial to making this show a real success. If you leave a name, I will absolutely promise to give you a shout out on the show. And hit subscribe, there'll be a fresh, bloody conversation every Wednesday. So until next week, form a circle, join hands, knock once for yes and twice for no, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>